before we go into the sermon, um, I don't know, maybe this is just for my own sake to say, but um, I don't know if you have a Sunday, or maybe today is the day where you, or maybe every week feels like the week that you just barely made it here. You just barely got the kids out the door. You just, you know, you had one heck of a week, and it was all you could do just to be here, and that's your win, and maybe you feel out of place because all you managed to do was be here. Um, I just want you to know that that's, that's all of us. Um, don't let the bow tie and the sweater vest fool you. I had a really tough week. It's just for me, I mean, it's fine, but for me, uh, just barely getting here means that during the week, I somehow overlooked some major problems with the slides, and you got to experience that in the worship. That, that was me, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, but, the, so what I want you to hear is that none of us are perfect. And the point here is not to put on something polished and perfect because God works with whatever we offer. And so whatever you brought here today, however present you're able to be, um, I'm glad that you're here. And we're all here as uh, imperfect people doing our best to um, worship a God who's working to make us perfect. So that's who we are. Um, today we are continuing in our series called The Blessing, where we're learning the, from the stories of Abraham how to love our neighbors. And last week we started this group of stories, a story that we're going to have to take in three pieces. And we looked at this encounter that, Jesus, or that Abraham has with three divine visitors who show up at his doorstep, and Abraham shows them this overwhelming hospitality, this overwhelmingly generous hospitality, and God responds by blessing him. And we talked about how, how much of a blessing it can be and how God blesses us through being open to our neighbors, to strangers, to people that can't give us anything in return. That was a very positive story and a very, uh, you know, we talked something you might find in Home and Garden. Um, But the rest of the story goes in a very different direction because it turns out that those heavenly visitors had two reasons for their journey. And today we're going to uh, start looking at the rest of that. And it's going to be a very different kind of situation. And one that you are unlikely to live, you're not going to experience exactly the same thing. But there actually is a lot that we can learn from this conversation that Abraham has with the divine messenger. And um, I think it'll teach us some surprising things that you may not expect to find in this story. What we're going to do is this will be our first of two weeks talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're going to pick up at the transition point in the conversation. Last week they were, taught, they were having this great conversation about how Sarah was going to have a baby. She was going to get pregnant after... Um, after menopause and have this baby that no one was looking for. And Sarah's response is to laugh because it's so unbelievable, even though God promised it. And they end up naming the baby laughter. That's what Isaac means. But then this conversation takes a turn in verse 16. And that's where we're going to pick up. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he had promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if they have, what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. 
The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous people is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 people there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham says, said, now I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord. What if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. It's an intriguing story of God bringing Abraham into his decision-making process, and they have this strange kind of negotiation about what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a powerful story. It's a well-known story. It's also a very easily misunderstood story. And so in order for us to understand what's going on, we're going to have to take a closer look so that we can really figure out what is God's mindset, what is God's intention, where's God coming from, and then understand Abraham's surprising role in this whole process. Uh, Because when you really think about it, I think Abraham does something amazing here that I'm not sure each of us would do. So let's start out, first of all, by understanding what God is doing. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah is the classic example of God's judgment. God bringing it down on sinners. This is where we get the phrase fire and brimstone. It's from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this picture that we have is, of, is often of God like watching everybody, peeking under their roofs and looking into their brains and keeping track of every time they mess up. And as the scores get too high, he strikes down that person and thunderbolt there and rock slide there. And, you know, and then, but then suddenly, he's, you know, there's this, these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and their accounts are just rising and rising, and it's so bad. It just makes him so angry, all of this sin, all of these people doing things he told them not to do, that he just finally decides, I'm so angry about this, I have to destroy these cities. And that's how we picture this. And that is not at all how the story is described. First of all, the question is, whose idea was it to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Who proposed that Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed? It's very very specifically phrased here. Watch watch what God says. The Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Where is, who who first brought up Sodom and Gomorrah as an issue? 
It's, it's the cry, right? The cry, which in, in the Old Testament, that is used to refer to the, either the cry of, like, if, if, there's, if the victim's dead, it's their blood crying out. That's what Abel did. Otherwise, it's the victims crying out for justice to God. Okay, so God is not like laser focused on Sodom and Gomorrah, just waiting until they cross that threshold and he can squish them. What's actually happening is God is not looking for a chance to squish anybody. But God is the king, he is the judge, and he listens to the outcries that come from the, from the oppressed. Right? When, when people cry out, there is someone listening. God is listening. And he is hearing this outcry. And in fact, in Hebrew, there's this interesting thing that you could never communicate in English, which is that when it says um, what they have done is as bad, that could also mean is as worthy of destruction. So what this is telling us is that the victims of this city have been crying out for God to deliver them by destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a a writer in, or an early church leader in the 400s, who, uh, named uh, Sylvian, who said, why does he say that the sins of the people cried out? It is because God says his ears are assaulted by the cries of our sins that the punishment of sinners is not delayed. Truly, it is a cry, and the cry is great when the love of God is overpowered by the cries of sins to the extent that he is forced to punish sinners. The Lord shows how unwilling he is to punish even the gravest sinners, when he said that the cry of Sodom ascended to him. This means, my mercy urges me to spare them, but the cry of their sins compels me to punish them. So notice, the victims of Sodom and Gomorrah are crying out for justice, crying out for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God says, all right, fine, I've heard you, I will go down and I will check, and if things are as bad as you say they are, I, am going, I will know. Is that what he says? Actually, that's not what he said. It's different. It's, it's, very, it's slightly but different in a very important way. Notice he says, um, oh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. He says, uh, if it's not as bad as they've said, I will see. I will find out. What is he looking for? Is he looking to confirm what they've said? He's actually looking to poke holes in what they've said. He's saying, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check because I... I don't think it's, I, I, I would hope it's not bad enough. Now, obviously, God knows. I'm not saying that God didn't actually know. Him coming down is a way of him demonstrating to us that he does his research. He doesn't just destroy things willy-nilly. But the point is that his investigation is not looking for an excuse to destroy them. He's looking for a reason not to. The passage that I skipped over, uh, that I did out of order, um, gives us a little bit of clarity on one of the things that we misunderstand about the nature of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, because we'll talk about the, the reason why we think their sin was sexual is something we'll talk about next week. But the, what provokes this outcry, there's no connection with a sexual sin. The outcry tends to be some kind of injustice, oppression, maybe murder. And in the future, Sodom and Gomorrah have a very different reputation in Israel's tradition than what we have done with that terminology. Because it actually says, uh, Ezekiel says, uh, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. 
So the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah is not that God had been peeking in their bedrooms and peeking in their minds and just hated what he found there so much that he had to squish them, but it was that they had been oppressing others. And the victims who had no other protection, no one else to call out to, had called out to God, and it got so bad that God decided he needed to investigate. At least that's what he's communicating to us. Again, God knows everything, but he's very, he wants, the whole point of this story, as we'll see, is for us to understand how he's operating. So the story begins with the fact that God came down to investigate the complaints of Sodom's victims. Okay, that's what's going on. And what happens is there's three divine messengers. One of them stays with Abraham, and two of them go off to Sodom and Gomorrah. And next week we'll talk about what happens when they get to Sodom and Gomorrah. But one of them stays with Abraham. And the implication, at least it feels like it to me, that it's God and two messengers, and he sends the two messengers, and then God stays to talk with Abraham. Because God has this, does this interesting thing. He stays behind, and he basically says, Hey, Abraham, let's talk about what we should do with their findings. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. What should I do when they tell me what happens, like what they find out? Which is really interesting for God to do with a human being. But God, we actually get to see, it's one of the few places where we see what God is thinking. The Lord said, this, this is what he said to his messengers, to the other two before they leave. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's the blessing we've been talking about throughout this whole series. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Notice this is the first time that God says there's a condition in his promise to Abraham. That fulfilling the mission he put Abraham on, being able to bless others, depends on him and his descendants living out God's ways and doing what is right and just. Those words in Hebrew, they just mean what is correct and what is fair. Right? They need, so basically what he's saying is, Abraham, you, your family, you're going to need to make decisions like this all the time. So I want you to participate with this one in me, with, participate in this one with me, so that you can learn what it looks like to make the right and fair decision. So God invited Abraham to weigh in because his people would need to learn justice and fairness. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think, okay, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah were these cities that were, they were, they had this reputation as being united against everything good. They were the opposite of what God wanted for humanity. They were oppressive. They were horrible. They were mean. They were foolish. They did, you know, and I want you to think, for every one of us, you can probably think of some city, some state, some group of people who, who you think are the modern Sodom, okay? And I doubt that, uh, I doubt that we'll all have the same groups in mind. Um, Portland might be an obvious choice because they're a big city, they're in our neck of the woods, and, and there's so much in Portland that anybody could find a reason you know, to be upset with some part of it. Maybe it's Texas. Maybe it's Las Vegas. Maybe it's New England. I don't know. But I want you to think about that wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> huh? Huh? That was a Star Wars reference for you. Uh, whatever that is for you, and I want you to keep them in mind, okay? Now, here's the first thing I want you to do with that name, that group, okay? Imagine that God pulled you aside and said, hey, 
I've, I've sent some angels to investigate that place. What should I do well, when, they, when I find out what's really going on there? How should I treat that city? What, what's your instinct going to be? What are you going to want to do? Which way are you going to be leaning, right? You're going to stack the deck a little bit, right? We all do. Abraham certainly will. You're going to kind of lead the discussion so that, so that the decision-making process will result in fire and brimstone, maybe? Maybe light fire, you know, like freezing rain, maybe, or some, some, some kind of light punishment, but certainly punishment, right? Notice Abraham's reaction, especially because we love in the church to throw around Sodom and Gomorrah as labels for our enemies, Look at how Abraham treats Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Notice, he's challenging God to do what is right, which is exactly what God wants Abraham to learn how to identify, okay? So Abraham challenges God to do what is right. And the city of Sodom probably had about 100 fighting men in it, would be a decent estimate. So he's basically saying, like, well, if they're half-righteous, you're not going to destroy the whole city because they're half-righteous, right? Now, he knows they're not half-righteous. He, he's familiar enough with Sodom. He, he spent days on the road with most of their population when he saved them and brought them back and then had a, yeah, he knows they're not 50 righteous people in that city. But he's working an angle. He's working towards an argument, right? And that argument, is, is he looking for a reason to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? No, he's, he's looking for, he wanted to find a reason to spare the people of Sodom. He's starting to build a case Spare them. Is that how you'd be leaning if God asked you what to do about Portland or Texas or Las Vegas or Almsville? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I have nothing against Almsville. I promise. I just had to, yeah. The point is, Abraham, his first instinct is to protect Sodom. Of course, God you know, God fights him every step of the way, right? Like God is totally on a different page. God resists everything. Actually, one of the commentaries I read, I got so frustrated with, I had to shut it and put it away. And just Normally, I'm, I, I enjoy reading a perspective that's very different from mine because it challenges me to actually think what I'm thinking through, think it through. This one, I just got so frustrated to put it away because he, he was making the, he was arguing that uh, God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham presents this idea of grace that had never occurred to God before, and he, like, talks God into grace. First of all, as we saw, God's not the one who brought up destruction. God has yet to even mention the idea of destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. What he's doing is he's, in, he's considering the request of the victims to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Second of all, look how hard God resists this request that he spare the city for 50 for the sake of 50 people. Look how much he tries to wiggle his way out of it. The Lord said, if I find 50 people in the, righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. It's like, yeah, of course. Right? He's, he's right on board with, with Abraham's. Abraham's not convincing God of anything. God is practicing that leadership technique where you have a discussion among your people, but the person making the decisions makes sure they're the last one to talk. 
right? That's a, that's a, a way that you, because you, if, you, if you present your opinion and at your, what you want to do and ask your team for suggestions, they may just agree with what you said because the boss said it. So usually what the king would do is he would say, what do you guys think? Listen to all of them and then say what he thinks. And so what's happening is what we see is that Abraham wanted to find a reason to spare the people of Sodom and so did God. God offers no resistance to any of Abraham's arguing through this process. Not one note of resistance. Because the point of this is not to come to a conclusion that God couldn't have reached on his own. It's to help Abraham come to the conclusion that is right and just. This is, God is apprenticing Abraham in righteousness and justice. And, he, and Abraham is on the right track. So then Abraham negotiates him down. He says, okay, well, you know, if half of the 50 of them are righteous, okay, but, but if it's only 45, like that's, that's basically the same, right? You're not going to, for the lack of five people, you're not going to destroy the city, right? Well, but, but what about 30? Surely you wouldn't, you would, 20 people would be enough. And then he ends with this, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And he stops there. Now, the question is, why didn't he go further? Because what we're going to find out is that at most, there are four righteous people in Sodom. We'll find that out tomorrow. That there are four that Abraham knows of. So why did he stop at 10? If he had kept going, could he have talked God down? One of the commentaries said God was getting angry and he didn't want to push his luck. Again, I don't think is what's going on there. Actually, what I think is going on is that they're not actually doing real arithmetic. God's not actually doing mathematical formulas. His grace isn't a math problem. They're talking principles, and he's been going, out, going down by units of 10. 30, 20, 10. The next increment is zero. That's why he stops at 10. But it's, why is he doing these numbers? Because if, if it is arithmetic, then he would need to go down, you know, try, try to get to one if you can, right? But it's because they're not talking about an arithmetic problem. What I see, and, and the Bible isn't super clear on this, so I'm, I, this is me stepping into interpretation, okay? Just to be completely upfront with you. This is interpretation, but this is what I see playing out in the rest of the story. That the story of the visitors coming to Sodom and Gomorrah is a test of the potential of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because what's going to happen is there is going to be a confrontation between the righteous people in Sodom and the unrighteous people in Sodom, and the question is going to be, Will the unrighteous people listen? And in multiple ways, they are not. And in fact, one of the righteous people is going to, going to uh, kind of turn back. And the influence is going to go the wrong direction. So, and, and so what seems to be at play here is not an arithmetic, but a question of hope, of opportunity, of righteous influence. What they're agreeing is that Sodom would be spared if there was righteous influence left in the city. It's not a matter of numbers, it's a matter of potential. If there are righteous people in the city doing what they're supposed to be and, and influence in the city for good, there's hope that Sodom and Gomorrah can turn around. But if there's only one family left and the city isn't listening to them, and, and, the, city, and, it just can't, and the train cannot be stopped or turned around or slowed down, then, then that's when God will follow through on the demands of the victims. So that seems to be the question. Now we're sticking with Abraham's side of the story. 
and Abraham uh, drops out of the story until later in, in chapter 19, when the next morning it says uh, he, he got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. This is how Abraham finds out that there was not a righteous influence left in the city. And that God acted uh, on, the, on the cries of the victims. So what that tells us is that the, in the end, God found no hope for Sodom to change, and so he destroyed their oppressive regime. It's interesting, we might talk about this more next week, I'm not sure, so I'll throw it in here, that we often think of Sodom and Gomorrah as this instance of intense fury and God being cruel. In, in the prophets, they considered Sodom and Gomorrah to be merciful because uh, in Lamentations, they talk about how basically, he says, I would rather have been in Sodom than in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was under siege for a year and people starved to death and died in battle and it was way worse than getting burned to death in an instant. Um, so the, what this communicated to the original audience was not God being cruel. It was actually almost like, like the guillotine. Like the guillotine was invented as a way to mercifully behead someone, even though it became a symbol of, of fear because it was horribly used, but it was a way of, it's much more reliable than a guy with an ax. Sorry, that went a weird direction. The point is that, the point is that in, in the original audience saw this as God um, as kind of a merciful execution, a merciful judgment that brought an end to their oppression for the sake of the victims. But there is one kind of ray of light coming out of the rubble, which is that it says, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So because of Abraham's intercession, because of Abraham's conversation with God, at least his family, or most of it, was saved. Now the question is, what does this mean for us? I do not expect that any of you will be consulted by God on destroying some city. Um, but there is a lot that we learn in this story about what it means to be good neighbors. And I think it's very relevant to some of the things that are going on today in our culture. First of all, it's important for us to understand God's, accurately understand God's character here because God, we have somehow managed to get an idea of God as being eager to destroy, as that God loves to destroy sinners, like it's his hobby, like he's a kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass and he just, he's hoping that we'll mess up so he gets another person to squish. And then that gives us permission to think about sinners that way. Right? We can say, hey, God's going to squish you so I don't have to care about you. That's not the message that the Bible tells us. Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God actually, and it's one of the reasons, the Bible is actually more concerned with why God doesn't punish sinners than why he does. More often, you see people in the Bible saying, why haven't you destroyed those people yet? That's the injustice they're concerned about. And God's saying, I still want to save them. The book of Jonah has this incredibly powerful ending. where Jonah, There's a lot of parallels between Jonah and Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah goes to the city very reluctantly, preaches a one-sentence sermon, and then goes straight to a hilltop to watch the fireworks. But Nineveh, unlike Sodom, they repent. 
Nineveh was Sodom like times 20. They were doing the same kinds of things that Sodom and Gomorrah were doing, but they had this huge empire they were doing it in. And he's waiting for the fireworks, but the people of Nineveh repent, and Jonah is furious. And the last thing God says to him at the end of the story is this. He says, should I not have, not, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? See, shouldn't I care about those people too? Those people that you hate, shouldn't I care about them too? And that's the hard lesson of Jonah, that God loves your enemies. That's the lesson of Jonah. God loves your enemies, and he doesn't ask your permission. So what we find is that God loves all people, even people in Sodom, Nineveh, and remember how I had you come up with a city that was your, who you thought of as the modern version of Sodom? I want you to put them in that line. I want you to write whoever you think of as Sodom, whoever you think of as the irredeemable people that should be written off, the people that you think, I'm actually not going to go to that city, I would never go to that city because I don't want to be in lightning bolt range. Right? Like, I'm, I'm going to stay away for the day that the fire and brimstone come. Put them in there. And remember that God loves them and wants to save them. And then, through gritted teeth, maybe admit that the people that God loves, we are supposed to love. Right? That's the amazing thing about Abraham. It's the amazing thing about Abraham is that Abraham doesn't even have to be told that he should be trying to protect Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't have to be told that he should be trying to... Uh, to achieve mercy rather than judgment. He just does. And then Jesus teaches us the same thing. He says, to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. I know exactly who Jesus would write on that line. Jesus is Sodom, is Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. He, he loves this city, even though they killed the prophets, and a big part of his message, if you remember when we went through the plan, a big part of Jesus' message is repent and believe the gospel before this whole place gets destroyed by the Romans. Right? He, he constantly is telling them, this city is going to get destroyed if you don't repent, if you don't follow me. It's the same situation. That's actually the new, in the New Testament where they make that connection that it'll be worse for those cities than it was for Sodom because it'll be a long siege again. But the point is that these cities are... Jesus, uh, Jerusalem is Jesus' version of Sodom. They are the ones doing it wrong. They, they actually are going to want to kill him and yet, as he approached Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, when he saw the city, he wept over it. And when they were in the middle of crucifying them, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. That's how Jesus treated his Sodom. Abraham and Jesus both teach us to love our enemies and intercede for them. And let me, let me tell you something. Um, I, I want to push you on, a, on one little thing about what it really looks like for intercession. Sometimes we twist this around when we intercede for cities, but we will say, we inter, intercede for sinners by saying, like, help them, help them see themselves the way I see them. 
Right, like that's my prayer is I pray for sinners that they'll understand exactly how bad they are and, and like, like it's a very self-serving prayer, like make them be, like see, make them know that I was right is kind of the prayer that we say for sinners. Abraham doesn't pray anything like that. He just says, spare them. Please don't kill them. Let's find a way not to kill them, right? It's not a self-serving intercession. It is our genuine love for those people. And so what we need to learn from this is that like Abraham, God's people should be passionate about redeeming Sodom and not destroying it. That should be where our passion is. We shouldn't be gleefully identifying which natural disasters were punishing which sins. We should be desperately praying for the knowledge and the wisdom and the power to intercede and to, to change the lives of people who need Jesus. And there's one last thing. This is where we're going to get really current and relevant and a little bit political. There's one last dynamic that's going on in our country that is unchristian. Now, you, may, you probably know some people who have participated in this trend, and I am not criticizing any individual person or family who has made a decision like this. But the fact that it's happening so much, this trend is unchristian. How many of you know someone who has moved to Boise? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, this is a map of the 1992 presidential election. Every district that you see highlighted in a color is a blowout district where the candidate won by 20 points or more. That means that those are the places that are controlled, basically one party control, right? Now, watch what happens as we move through presidential elections. That's 2012. That's eight years before COVID. I couldn't find what it looks like today. Now, <clears throat> the distribution of colors is deceiving. It's because the red ones are just bigger districts. Um, but each, each box, each shape is the same amount of people. But the point is, what's happening is, people are moving to places where they can live with only those who already agree with them. They are moving out of their Sodom and into this, their, Jerusalem, their righteous place. Now, again, I'm not saying that your friend who moved to Boise must have been a bad Christian, okay? People make decisions to move for individual reasons, but this is a trend of people fleeing those they disagree with, running away from Sodom. And nobody runs away from Sodom in the story until God tells them to, right? Lot stays. Abraham prays for them. And this, this is not what God calls us to do. Here's a prayer that Jesus says for his disciples at the Last Supper. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. How do we respond to the hate of the world? By running away? My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My point here is that God does not call us to flee from Sodom. He sends us to be the godly influence that saves us. Tell you what, it is a lot more comfortable to move to the place where everybody agrees with you. That's why people keep doing it. Right? I, get the, I, I get the appeal. I get wanting to live in a place where you feel like you can trust the school system. You know, I get moving to a place where you feel like your business is more likely to flourish. Or I, I, get, I get the motivation. I'm not saying that it's, 
that it's, I, I, I get that. And it is harder in a lot of ways to stay. But nobody said the mission of Jesus was easy. He said that it was important. He said it, that it's what Jesus tells us to do. And so for us, if we want to be like Abraham, let alone being like Jesus, we need to be seeking the good of our enemies, seeking the good of our Sodoms. We need to be praying for them, interceding for them, loving them, having them over for dinner. We need to be serving them after the example of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, this is a, a hard challenge that you lay at our feet, um, but it is not harder than the challenge you, your son took up when he came to this earth, when he came to a world full of people who rejected him and opposed him and lived for us and died for us and lived again for us. We pray that you would give us the passion to love our enemies, give us the passion to love our neighbors, the Sodoms, the, um, those places that make us angry and afraid. Help us to love them and to seek their good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we sing our last song, I want to invite you to uh, respond to the gospel in a couple of different ways. We believe that any time the gospel is preached, you have the opportunity to respond. And we believe that a fully functioning disciple of Jesus connects with God and his church, grows in faith and love, and serves their community and world. So, if you're interested in taking the next step in connecting with God and his